House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Malcolm Robinson, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be on your show. I'm looking forward to talking about all the wonders mysterious of the universe, yeah. Yeah, and there's quite a few. Um, uh, <laughs> so the before you get we get into the books and all the stuff you've done, uh, why did you first get into uh, paranormal? Like, what drew you into it where it's full-time now? Yeah, as a, a small boy growing up in Scotland, uh, I always had this fascination for all things weird and wonderful. And uh, I started to read uh, books on ghosts, but these were more fictionalized. And I went, well, really, I must get my teeth into something more substantial. So I started to buy books which allegedly claimed um, true tales from people. Then I went on to the books of Eric van Daniken, uh, various other books. So I, I kind of immersed myself in this, this wonderful, these wonderful stories. But it must be said... I was very, very, very sceptical. I did not believe that there were any validity to the claims of people seeing ghosts of UFOs, of lake monsters, etc. But as the, years have, <laughs> as the years have rolled by, yes, of course, there is a lot of nonsense out there. Absolutely. But there is no smoke without fire. Uh, I formed my own society entitled Strange Phenomena Investigations back in 1979. I've been involved with many major cases in Scotland and England to do with ghosts, poltergeists, UFOs. I'm one of the few people on this planet that's been down in a, the Loch Ness submarine. And mm. I was at one point possibly going to be working with Steven Spielberg, which we may come back to later on in the show. But as I've traversed through this, this journey, um, which has led me to where I am today, I've totally convinced, convinced of the sincerity, of the validity of life after death through speaking to doctors, nurses, people who have experience, experiences. Yes, there is a case to be said about oxygen starvation to the brain and wishful thinking. Of course, of course there is. But in the main, what I've personally uncovered is, this, as I said, a continuity after physical material death. Um, UFOs, well, again, I thought, what a load of nonsense. But I've, been, I've seen some strange things in the sky myself. I've been part of many sky watches in England and Scotland and various parts of the British Isles. I've seen some amazing things, and uh, I'm convinced now of the, the validity, again, uh, that we're dealing. We're dealing with something non-human, something that probably has been with us forever, for since, uh, you know, time began. As to what they want, they being, you know, aliens, call them what you will, is open to question. But uh, I would like to obviously discuss with yourself, Al, and Ken, and your listeners, some of the amazing tales that I've uncovered over the years to get me to where I am today. And it's all about getting involved. It's all about getting off your backside and truly getting your hands dirty and uh, rummaging through all the, the cases and, and just trying to find out what's true, what's not true. And uh, it's been a wonderful journey, which uh, I'm still on today. It's a great, great ride. What, what, what is it that, how do you, determine if something is 
real or if something's kind of, you know, a little hokey? Like, how, how, how can you tell? Yeah, that's a very good point. And I guess without any instrumentation, we can have lie detector tests, etc. Um, but people can lie under, uh, you know, lie detector tests. They can control the movements of their body, so they may be telling lies um, or telling the truth. So we have to be careful. We can't decide there and then that that, that's, that proves something, you know, passing a lie detector test. For me, you asked the question, but for me, it's a culmination of the people I've spoke to, of the sincerity. Uh, admittedly, your listeners may say, well, Malcolm, you know, it's only just their words. And that's true. That's true. So it's a combination of uh, the testimony. Uh, and believe you me, Al, I've whittled away a lot of rubbish. I've whittled away a lot of stories, which sounds great, but it just doesn't tick the boxes, so to speak. So to answer your question, for me personally, it's a combination of really an in-depth interview with the witnesses, maybe studying any photographs that they've uh, submitted to our society, which we would send off to experts here in the UK and in America for a second opinion, and trying to find out if this presumed UFO is a model hanging from a tree by a thin wire, or etc., etc. So for me personally, it's just a case of... Um, just truly believing in what they have to say to me. But I've got to be careful because every single investigation we do as a research group, we go in still very sceptical. You have really got to, <laughs> you've really got to convince us that something tangible is really happening because although I believe in this thing, these things, it would be very, very wrong of me to um, just accept everything, everything willy-nilly, and I, I don't do that, you know. So what would that evidence for you be? Uh, can you give us an example of something that would completely sell a story to you? Well, probably, and uh, one of the, the biggest things I've ever seen in my life, I'm going to share with you just now, I'm going to share with you and your listeners. Um, we, I used to run uh, meetings uh, in London some years ago, and a lady approached me after the meeting and she said, Malcolm, would you like to come and visit my home and see dead people? <laughs> Uh-oh. This could be, go either good or very bad. <laughs> very true. So I was a wee bit taken aback by that, of course, you know, that statement. Um, but to cut a long story short, I said, yeah, of course, okay. And we arranged the time and date. So uh, it's a, a, a little area called Chingford near London. And it was a, just a normal council house, as we call them here in the UK. And um, she took me upstairs and uh, she took me into a small bedroom and there was a glass, a wooden cabinet with glass shelves with rings, coins, buttons on it, on these shelves. I says, what's that? Oh, Malcolm, these are apports. These are things that were found in the seance room. They've just fell down out of thin air. We went to pick them up. Oh, really, really hot. And she had little tags on them, etc. You know, it was, it was quite interesting. She then took us into a secondary back bedroom, which was devoid of your main furnishings, apart from uh, a tall, slender cabinet in one corner of the room. And uh, at the corner of the room was a black drape. Behind the black drape was a singular chair. Next to the black drape was a small chest of drawers. And she says, Malcolm, 
shortly there'll be a psychic medium coming here to this house. He's going to go into trance and he's going to bring phenomena forward for you to observe. And I says, great, fantastic. I says, can I check the room? Pardon? Can I check the room? Why? I need to check if you've hidden any microphones or recording equipment or any devices that may mis I may misconstrue as something spiritual. So she said, yeah, yeah, on you go. So I was knocking on the walls, <laughs> hitting the floorboards to see if there was any hollow part of it. Everything appeared to be in order. And eventually the psychic medium came up to the room, introduced himself. We shook hands and he sat on the chair. Uh, this chair in the corner of the room, and we tied his arms and legs with heavy Velcro straps to stop him moving about. He had taken his shoes off as well. Then we pulled the curtain, this black drape, from one side of the, the room to the other, and four people, including myself, sat on chairs facing this black drape. You could see his socks sticking under the, the, the black drape. And um, we then extinguished the lights. There was a s very small red ambient light in the corner of the room. And uh, it, once you got accustomed to it, you could see the shadows, the silhouettes of the other people in the room watching this black drape. Now, on the walls of this bedroom were little bells. And suddenly, they started to tinkle, 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 tinkle. Then, voices, male, female, old, young pervaded the whole room. They were coming from the ceiling, from the floor, from the side, from your head, from your underneath your body, underneath when, where we were sitting, all over. And I thought somebody was throwing their voice. And I'm looking at, you know, the silhouettes of the people next to me, but they were astonished as I was. And then suddenly, the black drape pushed itself, pushed itself right out into the middle of the room, and you could see a face, a man's face was moulded, moulded into this black drape. Now, obviously, the drape had risen up a few um, inches off the floor, and you could see the chapel. His feet were still resting on the, on the floor. I forgot to mention, I, I padded his body down prior to him sitting down to see mm -hmm. if he was secreting any hidden telescopic rods, etc. There were nothing on his person. And then, um, then that went away again. And then suddenly the room got extremely cold, freezing, freezing cold, like one of those industrial lorries with the hooks of beef hanging up inside the lorry. It was absolutely freezing. And then this small chest of drawers, which was next to this drape in the semi-darkened room, started to move and flutter. Then it rose up into the air, moved across the room, and landed on my feet. Now, nobody, nobody was holding this. It wasn't a trick of the light. There were no wires, pulleys, anything. And it fell on my feet. Now, what happened next is quite comical, but it happened, I have to tell you. Suddenly, at this point, a voice boomed out in the room. Was Mr. Robinson impressed by this? What? <laughs> and I, I jokingly said... I'd be more impressed if you took it back. We shall see what we can do. Now, what I did then, Al, was I broke the cardinal rule of psychic phenomena. Never, ever, ever try to hamper someone who's in trance because they're allegedly creating this 
this, this, this effort to make spirit happen. So what I did was I hooked my finger, one of my fingers on my right hand, under the lip of this chest of drawers, the top drawer. And I said to myself, this thing, this chest of drawers is going nowhere. And I, then I said, okay, take it back. One minute went by, nothing. Two minutes, nothing. Three minutes, I went, I've got you now. And then suddenly, this pressure, this pressure pulled on my finger. Now, please, please believe me, Al, and listeners, nobody was at either side of this chest of drawers to lift it up in the air. Nobody. Suddenly, it just rose up into the air, moved across the room, and settled back down in the corner of the room. And boy, was I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, it was incredible. Now, the sad thing is, whilst that may be a good story, it's a story to use guys, to yourself, to your listeners who you weren't there. So I, I can't convince you. I can't create this, this visual identity, if you like. But uh, and this, a further sad thing, Al, was that um, she, she did not allow me to bring any video equipment into the room. And um, it's a massive, massive shame because that would have been wonderful evidence. But having said that, we're living in the Steven Spielberg age of DreamWorks Laboratory where anything can be manipulated onto a computer screen to look real when it's just jiggery-pokery, if you like, you know. So we have to be very careful. But that's just one thing that really blew my socks off. I'll never forget it. It was amazing. That is quite quite an experience. <laughs> and as I say, as I've uh, traversed through my research life, I'll, I'll give you another, for instance, uh, Alan Ken. But um, I was in this haunted house in t a little place called Tullybody in Clackmannanshire in central Scotland. And we had all the recording equipment. On that occasion, we had video cameras, we had uh, still cameras, audio recording equipment. And uh, we were sitting in uh, the darkness, not even a small light. And I said to myself, why do I do this? Because nothing was happening. There was nothing happening. Why do I do this? And then suddenly, suddenly the whole room exploded with a myriad of tiny pinpricks of white light, beautiful dancing lights like a, a November the 5th child's handheld sparkler. I, I, I dare say you get them in America, these sparklers. And it was all over the ceiling, all over the floor, it was all over your clothes, it was all over your body. And I turned to my psychic medium who was with us at, on that occasion, I says, Helen, what on earth is this? And she calmly says, oh, Malcolm, oh, don't worry, that's okay, it's just a... It's just pure psychic energy, and that's okay. And I went, what? It's wonderful. After about 20 seconds, the, it was just like a dimmer switch. The sparkling lights effect just dim, 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 and then we were catapulted into blackness again. So with fingers crossed, we approached the VCR uh, equipment, press stop, press rewind, press play, and with fingers crossed, we were hoping, hoping that we had managed to capture something magnificent to show the skeptics. We pressed play, nothing. Oh, nothing no. but darkness came up. And like I said a moment ago, even if we had have captured something, 
the sceptics would quite rightly have said, oh, good stuff, Malcolm, you've managed to put some computer graphics on it. Oh, well done, you know. So to, to ask, I think it was Ken asked the question um, earlier, you know, what mm -hmm. constitutes evidence for me? And would that have been evidence? Probably not. You know, no, and, and in your defense, I mean, it's not uncommon for things like that not to show up on video because it's an energy that is affecting you. Your mind is attempting to make sense of it, so it gives you a visual. You know, like the medium said, or the psychic said, this is a manifestation of psychic energy. It was. I mean, I've seen something very similar to that. Um, there was a late, now this is a big story, and your listeners may find this very, if not amusing, very strange. Um, we were dealing with a case uh, near, and again on the outskirts of London, a lady who claimed to be uh, psychically raped by a spirit. And I think there was a movie out uh, a few years ago on the same kind of lines of that. The Entity. Um, that's the one, yes, that's the one. And um, so we do know, sadly, we do know that it does go on. And um, it was the very, very first time that I had ever been involved in a case like this. And the poor woman was terrified. She had the shakes. Obviously, as a researcher, you have to see if it's a medical condition. Is she making it up? Is she trying to get in the newspapers? Is she trying to pull the wool over your eyes? Now, we ticked all those boxes as... She wasn't. She really, truly needed help. It wasn't a medical condition, although many people may disagree. Anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, I, was, uh, I went out with my girlfriend at the time, outside the house for a cigarette. We were gone maybe about 10 minutes or so, and we came back in, and we sat down on different chairs. And then suddenly I looked at the lady um, who was getting all these problems, and she was sitting in a chair in the middle of the living room, and then suddenly I saw these beautiful aquamarine lights, these beautiful goblets of glowing lights pervading all around her body, and I screamed out like a big girl. I went, my <laughs> God, what the hell is this? And my girlfriend at the time, she screamed out as well, saying, oh, can you see it? Can you see it? Now, this poor woman, she's going, what? What? What, what are you looking at? And missing the, psychic, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. And the psychic who was there, she says, oh, yes, sorry, Malcolm, sorry, Malcolm, I forgot to tell you that when you were out with your girlfriend having a cigarette, I administered some psychic healing on the lady to try and calm her down. So, you know, what you're seeing is the remnants of my psychic healing. And that visually was astonishing, Al, it really was. And how I wish yourself and your listeners could have seen this. Um, it's just one of these things that you least expect to happen, and it just it just happens, you know. Now, have you ever in 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 your travels and during your experiences, have you ever run into something that was demonic, or or malevolent, or perhaps a person who was possessed? Um, not as such. I mean, I have been slapped by nothing. I've had my hair pulled on a case by nothing. I've been kicked in an investigation in a haunted house by nothing. And so whilst that, that can be scary, it wasn't, it wasn't malevolent, you know, it wasn't bad. I mean, we were in a house in Kirkintillich near Glasgow, and it was a massive big house, and um, it was a, a retired police officer's house. And um, we walked in, they were having problems with some ghostly phenomena. Now, when we walked into the house, Al, 
every single door in the house had a crucifix hanging down from it. Every wall in the house had a copy of the Lord's Prayer. And I turned round and I said to my fellow investigators, by God, have we got a case on tonight? So um, as we walked up to one of the child's bedrooms, um, suddenly it was like someone had pulled my hair back or brushed my hair with like fingers. You could feel separate fingers in my hair. And I said to Billy, who was one of the investigators, Billy, put on the light, put on the light. He's going, why? Just put on the light. And I thought perhaps maybe I had walked into a piece of ceiling that had maybe fell down, a piece of plaster from the ceiling had fell down, or, or maybe it was a child's mobile, like a toy, toy aeroplane hanging down or something. And when he switched the light on, there was nothing. Nothing was there at all. And, um, but clearly that happened. And then one time uh, when I was working in Scotland, uh, I started uh, at 6 a.m. in the morning and I got up for work right about 5 o'clock and I went downstairs into the kitchen. My wife at the time was sleeping soundly, very quiet, it's very quiet, it's early morning, everything's quiet. I go downstairs to the, to the kitchen to make a cup of tea and as I put the kettle on, suddenly I felt that there was something standing behind me. I don't know if you've ever experienced that gut sensation when you just know somebody is there, somebody's behind you. So I slowly turned around and looked and I saw nothing, nothing. Now, I was a bit shaken up at this. Then I went to my work and when I went to my work, all my colleagues were looking sad. I went, guys, what's the matter? <laughs> you look very sad, cheer up, come on. Oh, did you not hear, Malcolm? What? We Bobby Smith died last night. Now, Al, this was a sceptic who said, Malcolm, you're off your head. There are no such things as ghosts. <laughs> and ever, whenever I die, and pray God it's not for a long, long time, whenever I die, I'm going to come back and you'll know about it. Now, I never saw him. I clearly, clearly felt his presence. I didn't know he had died. And I've never experienced that again. And it's just some of the many bizarre things that's happened to me throughout my life. Now, I want to get your take on this, and then I promise I'll, I'll shut up and let Al have a chance at you. But uh, now let's go back to the beginning of that story because it's, it's something that really bugs me. You said is that as you walked into the house that, that there were crucifixes and, and Lord's prayers. Now, Malcolm, let me get your take on, on this theory. It, to, to me, you know, being an experienced ghost hunter or an, an investigator, to me, those items them, in and of themselves don't really matter. It's the belief that the person has in them. And, and here's why. In Scripture, Lucifer himself approaches God to give account of his deeds in the book of Job. So if he's able to stand in the face of God, what? how is a crucifix or a prayer, or a Bible, or, you know, a, a rosary, or what have you, what effect do they expect that to have on an entity? Yeah, I guess it's uh, just like comfort for them, I guess, you know, just like small comfort. Maybe maybe they felt that um, by doing this, maybe that would lessen the events uh, in the family home. Um, and a lot of people would say, look, if it's going to happen... <laughs> Having some crucifixes and some Lord's Prayers certainly won't make any difference. 
But it gave him just small comfort, and uh, if that helped him believe that, I guess mm -hmm. that's okay. But yeah, you're, you're quite right. You know, it may not have served its purpose, but um, it helped him for a time. So it, it's the belief that the person has in the item. Would, would, could you validate that for us? Yeah, I mean, uh, they, they were of the persuasion. They were very, you know, strong with the Bible, etc., etc., and they felt very clearly and dearly uh, about uh, Jesus Christ as the Savior, etc. And they were none too pleased that suddenly they were having all this phenomena occur in the family home for no reason, because nobody had died in the home, nobody had died in the street. Uh, this, this just came out of the blue. And uh, they felt that by placing this, uh, the Lord's Prayer and the crucifixes up, that maybe lessened um, the phenomena to happen. They tried, you know, getting priests in to bless it with holy water, etc., uh, and nothing really truly happened. Um, so what we did, obviously, with that investigation and with other investigations were that um, we employ the services of a psychic medium and we say to the, the occupants of the house, look, will you give us free reign of your property tonight? Uh, can we stay here? And, you know, if, if you want, you can move to your a friend's house. And incredibly... The, the families all move out, you know, give us free reign um, in the hopes that we can do something. So what we do then is we occupy various rooms uh, of a property. We spend about 20 minutes in each room, singular, you know, not as a group. And uh, different people write down what they got in their, their rooms. And then we all meet in the morning, uh, the very early hours of the morning, to see what we got. Now, the psychic also tries to find out who, who is behind these disturbances and why. So she gets names, etc. Then, I know it sounds a bit Hollywood, but we then do what's known as a cleansing uh, ceremony to say to the earthbound spirits that, look, you have passed on. You don't live here anymore, or, you know, if, if they did live there, we would have to check that later on. Uh, you don't live here anymore. I know you've got to go towards the light. Now, it, I know it does sound Hollywood, but nine times out of ten, we were very successful. And you could actually feel the room, the pressure in the room lessening. And, and it was like lighter, if you like, you know. So when the family comes back in the morning, we would relay the information that the psychic had provided on that night's investigation. And most often than not, they could take names, they could take what was happening. Uh, only once, only once have we been to a property which was badly uh, infestated by paranormal phenomena and the occupants of the house says, oh, don't get rid of it, <laughs> don't get rid of it, we just need to know who it is. They're not really causing us tremendous harm, it's quite exciting actually, but don't get rid of it, just let us know who's behind it. So that was quite an unusual one, you know. <laughs> so now, now tell us about your Loch Ness thing. Like you had an adventure. You went down in a submarine. Yeah, I mean, being a, a Scot Scotsman, I mean, I'm actually living in England now. I live in a small town called Hastings at the foot of the United Kingdom. But uh, And I, I came to live in England in 1998. But uh, when I lived in Scotland, um, obviously uh, my father regaled me with these tales of this water beastie, this kelpie, this water monster that inhabited the depths of Loch Ness. Now, when, I, when he told me that as a young boy, I was absolutely fascinated, you know, I just had to get up there because I've always had this, as I said at the start of the show, 
this this and oh, I just need to know what's going on with these these sightings and that. This fascination is endless. So we, as a young boy, we went up to Loch Ness and we went on the pleasure cruisers and I had my binoculars trained on the loch. I actually thought I saw three humps, but I'm sure I was mistaken. And um, as the years rolled by, I travelled up to Loch Ness myself with my friends and we camped on the shores of Loch Ness. We interviewed many, many people on the shores of Loch Ness as to what they've seen. We interviewed retired water bailiff Alex Campbell, who back in 1934 was the chap who really started the ball rolling. He put in a sighting of a lady who had seen a strange creature in the loch in 1933, and in 1934 um, they published that, and of course it just went worldwide. And Alex said, Malcolm, I was watching the loch, it was completely flat, and then suddenly this long neck, this long neck with a, like a sheep-like head, thrust, thrust out from the depths of Loch Ness, uh, very, very agitated, and then just sank, slid back into the depths of Loch Ness. I also interviewed Father Gregory Brucey at St. Benedictine Abbey on the shores of Loch Ness at Fort Augustus. Now, this is a man of the cloth, and he said, his story was that uh, back in 1971, he had taken a, a friend uh, an organist from Westminster Cathedral in London who travelled up to Scotland to meet with Father Gregory and they took them down to the shores of Loch Ness. It was early in the morning. The loch was like a sea of glass, just like a sheet of glass. They were at the, the, northern, sorry, the southern end of Loch Ness. Let me get this right. Southern end, yes. And... Um, they're looking along the, the loch, and then suddenly the same as Alex Campbell. This long, tapering neck came out with a sheep-like head and fell back into the depths of Loch Ness. So here's a man of the cloth. Now, that's not to say men of the cloth can lie. Police officers can lie. Members of Parliament can lie. We know that. But, you know, this is just another story coming from him. So in 1994, uh, I was fortunate enough to go down in the Loch Ness submarine. It was based at uh, a little town called Drumnadrocket on the shores of Loch Ness, uh, next to the Klansman Hotel. And um, they were taking members of the public down for an hour at £69 for the hour. Uh, it was a deep sea, a North Sea submersible, probably about 25 foot in length, very cramped conditions inside. It had a glass porthole in the nose cone of the submarine, toughened glass, very, very strong toughened glass, and it had five or six um, halogen lights at the front of the submarine as well. And to cut a long story short, we dived to an excess of over 400 feet. And uh, I've captured this on video, it's on YouTube somewhere, and I was filming out of the nose cone of the submarine through the glass portal, and it was sandy silt, sandy silt, because you could see it. It was lit up by these strong halogen lights that pervaded the blackness of the depths of Loch Ness. And then suddenly, the floor of Loch Ness disappeared, just dropped, bang, bang, just fell away. And I said to the skipper of the submarine, oh my goodness, look, can we go down there? He says, no, unfortunately, we have to stick to our allotted time and our allotted schedule. We can't go down there. The submarine could go down to depths of uh, just under about 900 feet or so. So 
It would have been fantastic to do that. And mm. what happened after that was um, I got a phone call from a Scottish journalist, a newspaper journalist who was writing a story in Loch Ness. And he says, Malcolm, what would you do? If, how could you capture Nessie? Do, do you have any thoughts how you could capture Nessie? And I did. I says, look, I have devised this. It's like if you can imagine a boxing ring, you know, the ropes in the boxing ring, only in a much, much bigger scale and a much higher scale. And you immerse that in the floor of Loch Ness. Now, on these ropes of this imaginary boxing ring, you would have like... Um, these spherical balls with radio biopsy darts, a lot of darts sticking out. Inside this big device, you will have uh, like a fish puree continually pouring out to attract Nessie. And as this creature came towards this boxing ring effect, big, much bigger in your mind's eye, as it pushed, as it pushed against the ropes, this would release like a grenade pin all these radio biopsy darts. They would fire about in every direction into the creature's side, not killing it, but neutralising it so that divers can come down and collect it. So he went away, and uh, next thing I know, I get a call again saying, Steven Spielberg now would like to take up and provide you the money to buy this, make this happen. And this went sensational all over Europe, this, 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 you know, this young Scotsman trying to capture Nessie. But like all things, <laughs> it never came to pass. Uh, sadly, um, uh, he went off to make some blockbuster movie and the whole thing fell through. But to this day, I still believe that this device can probably prove Nessie. And um, that obviously there's more than one. There's, I believe, up to maybe eight or nine creatures in Loch Ness, 24 miles long. Yeah. Hmm. What do you think it is? Well, I don't think it's a plesiosaur. Um, a plesiosaur cannot raise its neck uh, out of the water. Um, Loch Ness, uh, as we know, is landlocked, but it, it wasn't seven million years ago. It was open to the sea, and the story goes that perhaps some you know, creatures swam in from the sea, the land rose, somehow the, the, the water changed from a seawater into fresh water. I don't know how, but that's what they say. And these creatures were trapped. Now, Scotland is awash with other monster tales. In my book, The Monsters of Loch Ness, um, it's, uh, if you just Google that, The Monsters of Loch Ness, the history and the mystery, contains a lot of stories, not just from Scotland, but from Scandinavian lochs and various lochs all over the world. And uh, I think sonar is the best evidence to suggest that there's something in Loch Ness now, back in 1987, uh, a flotilla of boats named Operation Deep Scan were side by side by side by side from one edge of the loch to the other. They traversed up and down the loch with the best sophisticated sonar that mankind could ever handle at that time. And what did they get? Well, they got three anomalous returns on the, in the sonar scope. These were in excess of 30 feet. They were not grouped shoals of fish by any stretch of the imagination. And some of the boats about turned and tried to find that, but the signal had decreased in intensity, meaning that whatever massive object it was had submerged into the, the lock even further. So I think 
It's not an air-breathing animal. I know I mentioned about Father Gregory and Alex Campbell, they saw it coming up. It's an accidental breaking of the water surface as these creatures are trying to feed off the fish probably about five, six feet below the water surface. So it's an accidental breaking of the water surface for me. Hmm. Pretty interesting. So now the other thing you do um, on the UFO investigations, um, what kind of um, what kind of things have you seen with UFOs or, or aliens or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, um, I've seen a lot of things uh, throughout my life simply because I've put myself into that ballpark. Uh, probably one of the earliest ones was when I was about eight or nine years of age. So I was pretty young, of course. And I was playing football in a park, and it was a lovely summer's day. And then all my friends stopped playing football and looked up into the sky. And we were looking at this massive oval, this white oval-shaped object just hovering maybe about three, four hundred feet in the sky. Now, even then I knew that uh, it was something bizarre. And then, you know, I took my gaze off it for a moment looked back up and it was gone. So again all these things propelled my interest. In fact at Loch Ness, here we go back, on the shores of Loch Ness I was having a campfire with some Americans, Canadians, Germans, having a lovely evening at Loch Ness. The sky was awash, a myriad of stars, it was beautiful. And then suddenly this American woman screamed out, what the hell was that? And we turned round and across the loch at the other side, it was dark of course, you could see the silhouette of the, the hills on the other side. And there was this massive big object, this white object, dancing, if you like, up and down from the hills. And then it stopped, zigzagged, stopped and screamed off into the sky. So that, that was something else that I, I saw, you know. And um, But for me, probably one of the biggest cases that I've been involved with has been the A70 UFO abduction. Have you heard of that case? No, I haven't, no. Okay. Um, well, very, very briefly, um, I had never, ever worked on a claimed UFO abduction case. I'd heard about them, I'd read about them, but this was the first one that had, uh, was drawn to my attention. So, um, what happened was that uh, Gary Woods and his friend Colin Wright, two normal guys in their late 20s, normal guys, no interest in UFOs whatsoever. They've heard about it, of course, yeah, on, on newspapers and TVs, but never no interest. All that changed. On the evening of August the 18th, 1992, these two men jumped into their car and left the city of Edinburgh, uh, the capital city of Scotland. They, so they drove out of Edinburgh and they were driving down a road called the A70. Now, when you leave Edinburgh, the A70 goes out into farmers' fields, desolation, just fields, farmhouses, barren land for miles and miles. And as they were driving down this late at night, suddenly Colin, who was in the passenger seat, said to Gary, what the hell is that? Now, about 300 yards along the road was this two-tiered dark object glistening very black although it was black it was shiny it was pervading the strange light and both men knew right away 
This wasn't a conventional helicopter, wasn't an aircraft of any description. And so rather than do a three-point turn and go back, they decided to put their foot on the gas and scream underneath this object and <laughs> get the hell out of there, you know. So as the car was directly underneath this strange object, this object emitted a silver shimmering curtain of mist which descended from beneath the object and hit the car. Now, as soon as this effect hit the car, both men were enveloped in total and inky blackness. They couldn't see their hand in front of their face. They couldn't see the dashboard of the car. My God, are we dead? That's what they thought. Then what appeared to be seconds later, thankfully, they regained their sight. The car was shuddering, shuddering very violently on the road. They had to control the steering wheel to make sure it didn't crash. And they travelled on to their destination, a small village called Tarbrax. Now, when they got there, they knocked on the occupant's door, who they were going to see. And the occupant opened the door and went, Where have you been? You're an hour and a half late, boys. Now, the journey should only have taken 30, 35 minutes. And they were well over an hour and a half. Was, was, they were late. So they proceeded to tell the occupants that they had seen this bizarre thing. So I'm trying to cut a long story short, because it is quite a long story, but that night and later nights, subsequent nights, they had strange dreams. Strange dreams coming in of these, what appeared to be these alien creatures. Then they found scars, scars on their body, that previously were not there. We all know our bodies, we're all in the shower, we know what we've gotten. My God, where have these come from? So Gary said to himself, my God, surely it's not one of these stupid bloody UFO things, is it? But what if it is? Where do I go? Who do I turn to? So he went to his local library and he went to the paranormal section and he picked out a book by Jenny Randalls, who is a famous British ufologist, and my contact details were in there. And so, anyway, he contacted me by phone. I invited both men to my house. I listened to their tale. I says, guys, would you like to go under hypnotic regression just to see if perhaps, big perhaps, something else happened that night? And both men quite rapidly said, Markham, please, please, we'll, we'll do anything. We need to know what happened because... Nobody believes us. Even our wives don't believe us. They think we're going nuts. Yeah, we'll do anything. So we used a, a qualified hypnotherapist. We individually took both men back to that night. This is a, a couple of years later, by the way. It's, it's a long story why it went that way. Back to that night and under hypnosis, a typical abduction scenario unfolded. Now, under hypnosis, they claimed that the car was stopped stopped when that light hit the, the car. They were taken out of the car by these small grey creatures. We know them as the greys. Three and a half to four feet in height. Um, large pear-shaped head with black inky almond-shaped eyes. And they were taken on board what presumably was this object and stripped of their clothing. They were then placed naked on these flat raised tables and some form of medical or clinical examination was conducted on the person. Now, Gary was, he couldn't move. The only thing he could move was his eyeballs. He says, Malcolm, 
I desperately wanted to punch one of these guys, you know. But I, I couldn't move. He says, I couldn't move. I desperately wanted to hit them, but I couldn't move. And um, um, some, some weeks later, Gary's wife, who refused to believe him, phoned my house. And I picked up the phone and I said, yeah? Is that Malcolm? Yes, it's Malcolm. Can I help you? Um, it's Gary's wife. Can I apologize to you? Uh, why? Why? Well, you know how I haven't supported my husband. Um, well, last night I was lying uh, in bed next to my husband. It was late at night. My husband Gary was sleeping. I was reading a book. I closed the book, put the book on the bedside table, switched the bedside light off, and about 20, 30 seconds later, bang! Suddenly something had grabbed my ankles and pulled me, pulled me down the bed. And um, I looked and I saw, because there were a street light illuminating, penetrating through a slip in the, the curtains, I saw three creatures standing at the foot of my bed and they waddled through the wall and disappeared. And I'm so sorry, Malcolm, I truly believe my husband now. And so it all goes back to the start of the show, what constitutes evidence? Is it a good story uh, mm -hmm. or, or a good photograph? But these can be doctored. So, so now you've got these books out and all that. Do you have a website that people could uh, go to if they want to get a hold of you or, or see what kind of work you've done? Not a website as such. I mean, I do have uh, my Facebook page. Um, which is uh, www.facebook.com forward slash malcolm.robinson2. Um, so that's where I mainly put a lot of my, you know, my cases on, etc. And, um, yeah, anybody who wants to contact me with any stories or provide any photographs, everything will be treated in confidence. Have you, have you got any um, investigations coming up or anything planned? Uh, I may be looking at uh, Scotland's biggest poltergeist case again, called the Socky Poltergeist. Now, a wee bit before my time, 1960 this happened, but I'll be very brief. Have we got time to tell the story? I've got about five, four or five minutes. Okay. Uh, a little girl came over from Donegal in Ireland. She didn't want to move to Scotland. <clears throat> um, but the parents said, no, we're moving to Scotland. So reluctantly, she came over um, and they settled in the town of Socky near Allawa in Clackmannanshire. No sooner had they been in the house than strange things happened. A chest of drawers started to move of its own accord. The, the local doctor and the minister were, were called in because there were bangings on the wall, things going missing, pools of water appearing. And the doctor physically saw, as Virginia lay in her bed, the pillow next to her depressed down as if a secondary invisible head moved onto that bed. And um, now if things couldn't get any worse, it followed her to school. Now this is all documented. I spoke, re-interviewed the, the teacher and she says, Malcolm, oh my goodness, I remember it like yesterday. Uh, back in 1960, the classes in Scotland had about 60 children behind the desks, and she said, I looked up, I looked up towards the class, and everybody was writing away, apart from Virginia. Virginia had her forearms pushing down on her desk lid, and I says, Virginia, stop that. And as soon as Virginia took her forearms off the desk lid, 
the death lid started to rattle, rattle, rattle up in midair. On another occasion, Virginia approached the teacher with her school essay and dropped it onto the teacher's desk. And as she did so, this, and back in 1960, they had big blackboards and they point big long canes. So this cane, which was lying flat on the table, started to vibrate, vibrate, and then it stood up vertically and started banging on the table in front of these horrified kids. And it then, this, the heavy school teacher's table started to lift up four or five centimetres from the ground and swing right round, whereas the teacher, her stomach previously was in the long end of the table, the table had turned round 90 degrees and her stomach was now facing the, sh the short end of the table. At this point, the whole class erupted in terrified screams and they all ran together to try and get out of this one singular door. So the teacher opened the door, but she, she couldn't. She couldn't open the door. It was like a heavy man was on the other side pulling it, pulling it forcibly. And she had to make a joke to the kids. Oh, I'm sorry, children. Um, <laughs> it appears that the door's stuck. Um, I'll get to open in a moment. Just bear with me. And then suddenly the door just opened up and all these kids screamed sure. So I'll be trying to um, speak to some of the children who were in that class and get some more testimony. But uh, it's an incredible case. It really is. Oh, it sounds like it. My. Sounds like a whole nother show. Yeah. Well, this has been really interesting. And again, we're going to have your uh, books up on our website, and uh, we'll link your Facebook page as well so people can get a hold of you if they want. Um, again, our guest has been Malcolm Robinson. Thank you very much for being on the show. Malcolm, it's thank been you. a pleasure. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.